Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today we have a special guest from the Maryland Volunteer Lawyer Service, Susan Francis. Welcome to the program, Susan. Thank you. We're trying to emphasize in Everyday Law that lawyers can be pretty noble people and that they do give a lot. And so we've had a series of guests who are all involved in what essentially is a great public service, and that is that many people need legal help but can't afford it. And your organization has done a magnificent job for I, looking at it 40 years now. You must be very proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a weird time to be celebrating in the midst of a pandemic. Um, absolutely. And so I always hesitate to say we're celebrating, but... But really, I look back at what our founders created 40 years ago. I always think of it as some, you know, audacious folks that just thought, hey, here's a need and we're going to try to fill it. And what they've created is truly remarkable. And I think our ability to weather this really challenging time really is the credit of them, our former leaders and the volunteers that have really created this incredibly strong program that, you know, here we now have the opportunity to build on that and, and grow it even more going forward. So how many people does MVLS typically serve in a year? So it ranges a bit. And again, because we're in COVID, it's a little bit different. Pre-COVID, we help over about 5,500 individuals. When you count the actual the family members that are also impacted, that number often triples, it gets up into like the 15,000 range of folks sure. that are directly impacted by those legal services. Right now, we're, we're looking at a little bit lower. This past year, we just issued our annual report. It was closer to about 3,500 individuals that are helped every single year with those you know, real critical, basic legal issues that they're trying to navigate. And the nature of the work that is done really does have an impact on families. It's not just an individual who has a legal problem. A lot of it involves, I would imagine, landlord-tenant problems and things of that nature. Could you describe the array of services that MVLS typically provides? Sure. You know, what I always say is we provide the legal services that everyone may have bubble up. They're, they're sort of your common life issues, but for our clients, they're not going to get help with it. Otherwise, right, they're not going to get that legal assistance. So the, the main areas that we provide assistance in is family, so family law issues, sure. housing issues, like you said, landlord-tenant, but also foreclosure and other ways to create housing stabilization and consumer issues, which absolutely, you know, if, you're, if your limited wages are garnished, that's going to impact everybody in the household. And then the other three areas that we provide assistance in is, is tax controversy work. So if someone has an issue bubble up with either the comptroller or the IRS, we do criminal record relief work, which again, you know, your ability to get a job is going to impact everybody in your circle. And then we do estate planning and estate administration work. And so really every single one of those areas are things that touch all of our lives. It's trying to make sure that you know, those individuals that aren't left trying to navigate some of these really important family stability issues on their own. I mean, they're dawning issues for lawyers. I mean, one of the things that was a reservation, I'm essentially a personal injury trial lawyer. And I remember I was with a big firm in DC and I left in 1996 and was youthful and enthusiastic. And I really wanted to do pro bono work. And I was doing it through the Prince George's County Bar Association or Law Foundation, because I was in Prince George's County. And I was like, 
I don't know how to do all this. You know, I'd never done family law. I'd never really done a will or a estate planning. And interestingly, they immediately, and I shouldn't use this term, but I will, saddled me with seven bankruptcies. And of course, you know, bankruptcy ultimately has difficult aspects, but it's a lot of filling out forms and you know, gathering information and that sort of thing. And there wasn't so much in that era training offered by a lot of the pro bono organizations. It was kind of like, oh, you're seven and the bankruptcy. They didn't hand me seven. They handed me one and then another. And then it was like, oh, somebody's calling a bankruptcy. Bob Clark will do it kind of thing. I know that has evolved dramatically since then. Could you talk a little bit about how lawyers and community volunteers can learn about specific things they can do through MVLS? Absolutely. I would be happy to. But first, I just I want to quickly respond to what you just said, which is that isn't that telling that when as a lawyer, if we have an issue in our personal life, we go get a lawyer. Right? Oh, yeah. like we as lawyers with all of the skills and resources and abilities that we have know that our interests are not going to be best served by us representing ourselves. And so whenever I'm talking to attorneys, I'm always like, okay, who in this room would represent themselves for anything other than maybe a speeding ticket and no hands go up, right? I wouldn't do that. Right, right, right. (laughs) So like, what does that say in terms of what, you know, these other individuals are having to navigate in the system in which we actually wouldn't do it on our own with all of the the resources that we have. And, you know, I, I always think, that's telling. But I want to answer your question too, which is that we and other legal services programs take very seriously our responsibility to make sure that volunteers have the tools and the resources so that they're going to be successful. And part of that is because we are do-gooders. We want that to go well, but it's also from a very practical standpoint. One, we want a good outcome for the client. That's, That's why we do what we all do. But also, if you come and volunteer for us and you have a bad experience, you're not going to volunteer for us and you're going to go tell everybody else, right, that you've had this really bad experience. So from a very practical level, we want that experience to be really good. And so, for example, in terms of training, every single substantive area of law that we work in, we have recorded trainings in off the bat. So anyone can get that. Additionally, and this is really a wonderful thing we're able to offer because we cover a lot of different areas and we are so big. We have an extensive pool of mentors, both internally. We have staff attorneys that work in a lot of the same areas that we ask volunteers to help in. And we as staff attorneys all take cases as well to make sure we know what we're doing and recognize some of the additional barriers that someone that as limited income might be have to navigate and a legal issue. But we also have all of these mentors all across the state. So, you know, the family law attorneys who do this work day in and day out, they serve as mentors as well. So those are like right out of the gate, we offer that. And then we also help with things like, you know, I know this is crazy. This is going to sound crazy to you, but every once in a while, we'll have a client that, oh, I don't know, maybe has some unreasonable expectations about like what you can accomplish, right? We can be a great mediator for that. Like that's part of our role is to make sure that that communication between the client and the volunteer continues in a good positive way and so that's another piece that we can offer is like if there's a hiccup whatever the hiccup is like get on the phone with us or shoot us an email let us help you troubleshoot because again at the end of all of this we want this to be successful for the client and the volunteer so that the volunteer keeps coming back instead of saying oh I had this terrible 
outcome, they're going to then go out and say, like, oh, I had this great outcome. I felt so supported. Like, I really made a difference for the client. And like, that's the story that we want to be told. I mean, that's in what I do. That's the great reward that periodically I hear from people. And sometimes it's just out of the blue. And it's like, I was thinking about you, Mr. Clark, you really helped my family a lot. And it's like, you know, it's nice to make a living from it. But that's really what makes being a lawyer something that's really a wonderful thing. And and having an organization like yours offers an opportunity to broaden the array of things that you do and the people that you help. Absolutely. I will say, and let me just recognize too, like it is also daunting, particularly when we're asking a volunteer to step out of their legal comfort zone. And so for some areas, if you're a bankruptcy attorney and you take a bankruptcy case for us, that's pretty straightforward. We super appreciate the time, but like you got those tools already, like as a bankruptcy attorney, but we have a lot of attorneys who are um, perhaps stepping into areas that are not familiar to them. If we have a patent attorney, MVLS is never going to have a patent case for someone that is not in the area of, you know, that we're going to assist in. If that patent attorney will like come to us and say like, okay, you know, we as attorneys, like generally, we don't want to commit malpractice. We don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about. Like something like we all like, you know, but that's the whole point of having these trainings, of having these mentors, of helping someone do exactly what you're which is to grow a little bit, but to do it in a safe way. So either you can do that to really help someone and or grow a practice area. We have that pretty commonly, particularly with newer attorneys, either recent graduates or someone really looking to do something different. You know, we can provide that opportunity for them to do that, but in a safer, controlled way, as opposed to just like, you know, just jumping in on their own and then, you know, potentially kind of getting over their head. So, you know, the bulk of our audience are not attorneys. You know, presumably they're students and faculty and staff at Howard County Community College and their family and friends and that sort of thing. I'm wondering if there are contributions that can be made by non-lawyers to VLS. Absolutely. So a couple of things. Primarily, one of the things that we've really become more thoughtful and intentional about is building community partnerships. There's such a barrier, one, for individuals to know, and this might not seem immediately obvious. There's this huge barrier folks realizing that they have a legal issue. And so some things seem obvious, like if you need a divorce, you might know you need a divorce. But particularly when it comes to housing or consumer issues, you know, I always use an example of like, if someone has sewage backing up in their basement, is that a legal issue? Well, it sort of depends, which is, I know as attorneys, our favorite answer, but like, there's a lot of these sort of incidences or if someone can't pay their bills because their wages are being garnished, you know, is that a legal issue? And there are times the answer to that is yes. And times where the answer may not be yes. And so getting this sort of front of mind for everyone to be thinking about that sort of analysis of is this a legal issue? And then the next big question, of course, is, well, then what do I do (laughs) if I do have a legal issue? And so all of your listeners can, first off, just help elevate this notion of, and particularly if someone's struggling, a lot of times we certainly find this with our clients is they have multiple legal issues. And then they also have other multiple barriers that are trying to be addressed. So if you're, you know, working with someone or having conversations with someone who are experiencing a variety of challenges, I always ask folks to be thinking about, okay, 
when you're thinking about this, is there a piece of this that has a legal component to it? Because a lot of times there is, and that's not a natural, in our society, we think about like, do they have food? Do they have their electricity turned on? Do they have, and those things are all like really critical, but to do one more question, like, is there a legal issue here? Can we help remove these barriers through addressing a legal issue as well? Now, is that something that your MVLS staff does, or are you asking the volunteer lawyers to do it, or, or is it a combination of the two, or how does that work? I'm asking everybody to do it. Okay. Everywhere. Okay. Yes. I mean, we certainly are doing it internally. We are asking our volunteers, you know, for, for example, one of the things we'll do is if a volunteer is helping someone and they say, oh, hey, you know, we're helping this person with a bankruptcy case, but there's this other issue they're really having a hard time getting a job because these things are showing up on their criminal record that are expungeable. I'm not an expungement attorney, you know, as the volunteer, we'll get them a volunteer to help them with their expungement issue. Like we're very interested in addressing what they come to us, like what they identify, but also if we're going to help this person, let's reduce all the barriers we can for them. And so, yeah. So just as like, as the community, I would just be asking individuals to really be thinking about that when they're looking at how folks might need help. Is there a legal services piece to that or legal element? And then how to connect, whether it's to us or another program. And so, you know, sort of spreading the good word that there are legal services out there, there is help available and trying to make sure that individuals know about that, that they're not necessarily on their own, trying to navigate a really complex and confusing system that can have just, you know, heartbreaking and devastating impacts on their lives. That's an interesting avenue, too, that there's been some efforts, and I talked to Sharon about this the other day, to provide for attorneys as a matter of course in certain civil cases. And I mean, there I, you know, from reading the daily record and stuff, I know that there were some efforts in the legislature. And I wondered if you could speak to any of the, I mean, I would presume that there's a I don't know if lobbying is quite the right word, but an effort to make laws more hospitable to the public that you all are probably working on as well. Yeah, I think we I mean, we all work with in some coordinated effort to, to say we have a legal system that is premised on having an attorney. Your outcomes are going to be profoundly different and you're going to benefit if you have the resources to have an attorney. So for clients like ours, who are never going to be able to afford an attorney, they are always going to be left having to navigate the system on their own. They're going to have worse outcomes. Like that is just, you know, it's, I forget what the, it's something like if you have an attorney, it's like your outcomes are like six and a half times better. And that makes sense. Like just in terms of like, how do you prepare evidence? How do you, you know, how do you draft pleadings? How do you do alternative service? How do you, you know, all of those things, like all of those steps in a process that we as attorneys are taught how to do, individuals get stuck in the system all the time because they don't know how to do that. And so, you know, when we think about as attorneys and hopefully everyone, like we have trust in the system that is fair and just, and yet it is not. The reality is it's not. If you are trying to navigate this on your own and so you sort of start from there and then you look at the issues, particularly, you know, like we talked about, if you're talking about like, the custody of your child. I mean, I don't know anything that's more high stakes, right? That's than it. like maybe like death penalty stuff, right? But like the custody of your child is so important and trying to navigate that on your own, like that just, 
feels cruel, right? Like the chest is like, that's not right. And that's based solely on the fact that like economically, you can't afford, afford representation. And so I think from that premise, wherever we get to and sort of thinking about a, a civil right to counsel in the way that we think about, and you raise a good point because a lot of folks don't necessarily even know that in the criminal context, of course, you do have right to counsel, but on these civil areas, there just isn't any. And so unless you can afford representation, you're going to be navigating these really important things that we all think are very important on sure. your own. I mean, that's the thing as impactful as having criminal counsel as a matter of right, you start looking at getting evicted or something, you know, you're a parent, single parent with, with small children and you get evicted and you have nowhere to go and it's hard to keep them stably in school. I don't mean to diminish the impact of criminal sanctions, but that may be a vitally even more important avenue to have a lawyer and have your rights fully vindicated than almost anything. You just made the perfect point. I don't think I have anything I can. I, yes, okay. absolutely. I, I Absolutely. Yeah. And as you're where you were starting to go as well as like everything that flows from that. It is that one moment in time, which is devastating. And then it trickles into all of those things like then kids not getting the education, like that continuity that they need so that they're ultimately going to be able to succeed. And, and, you know, the ability to get the next kind of stable housing. Like one of the things we, we have this project where we work on like getting people's security deposits back, which may not seem like a big deal, but oh, it is a big deal. Right. When and you landlords have, right. are notoriously bad about it and right. violate and the law all the time on it. They do. And those funds, like a lot of folks need those funds, right? So if you lose your housing, like you need your security deposit to like, you know, and the security deposit you have to pay at the next place. Like it just becomes this cycle of then setting folks up for, for failure. And, you know, those evictions, you know, when you look at the court representation, it's something like well over 90% of someone that's facing eviction cases are navigating that on their own. And systems where individuals, where you have that sort of discrepancy, like you have a landlord or a landlord agent there. The reality is, as much as we want a fair and just system, when you have one side that's almost always represented and the other side that's almost never represented, abuse is going to fall in that system because there's there's no sort of other side to keep, keep them on. Well, you would like to think that the district court judges might have an appreciation after doing thousands of those that that's going on. I'm not, you know, I, I recognize they're supposed to be the neutral umpire, but it, it's, you know, it just seems, it seems morally wrong to me. I will say one of the things in these sorts of areas, so where it's like eviction or we have an, an affidavit judgment docket that we work in Baltimore city and that's where someone's getting sued for debt. Right. One of the challenges is the volume. And so judges have, you know, numbers of cases that they have to hear every day and they have their own requirements and, you know, the courts are always behind and always trying to catch up. And of course, COVID has not helped that. And so, you know, the reality is, you know, judges amongst other things are having to navigate really tight timelines. And when you have these high volumes of evictions of consumer cases, reality is like they're they're really not going to dig that deeply into it that's what you know if you were on if you had the case as the the volunteer you would be looking at it like in that sort of way 
judge isn't necessarily going to do that. Like they're Fair gonna, point. You know, Fair they're going to, is this sufficient? And they're going to move it on. You know, they're going to move on. So what kind of resources do the volunteer lawyers get? Like one of the issues with public defenders, we've had a lot of prominent criminal defense lawyers on, is that their budgets are not commensurate with the state's attorney or the state prosecutors. And a lot of times when they're in an appointed case, they get some limited amount of money to maybe get an expert to, to testify the DNA evidence wasn't as represented by, by the, the state's attorney. And I just wondered, are there resources to help lawyers investigate things? To some degree, yes. First off, I, I should say for family law attorneys, MVLS and a few other programs have a reduced fee Judicare program where we can right. reverse $100 an hour. So that helps offset a little bit sure. of the cost. But there is a litigation fund that actually is funded by the court, but it comes through um, Sharon's program, the Pro Bono Research Center. And so that can help with things like travel cost, copying cost, phone calls, mailing, process serving. Driving up to um, in Western Maryland to see somebody who's in jail who's otherwise yes. subject to a civil action, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And so they had, that's, it's a yearly program. It's a, you know, form that you fill out. And so it can help with some depositions, different kinds of costs. You know, it's a, it's a limited pool. So, but it really can be helpful. Because you're already giving your time, which is so valuable and we're so appreciative of it. We don't want to actually then on top of that, like so where does the money, where does the money come from for that? And for, I mean, you obviously have to have an administrative infrastructure and pay people salaries and that sort of thing. Where does that money come from? And how much do you, how much do you need? <laughs> I'm not kidding. So, I mean, it's, you know, yeah. I'd like to think that people listen to this and say, wow, this is a wonderful thing. How can we help? You know? Right. Uh, well, thank you. So in terms of the like the litigation fund and the, the Judicare program, that's coming from the actually the court, the administrative office of the courts, okay. and then gets administered through PBRC. In a general way, you know, the, the legal services programs, so there's 20 some 30 of us, there's different programs throughout. We are the statewide pro bono program that's providing these services across the state. Although we really, it looked like not in Montgomery or Prince George's. Is that right? Yes. Although it gets a little bit complicated. Okay. So we, we focus on full representation, what we're talking about today. Sure. Um, there are smaller geographic programs. So like the reason we don't lead in Montgomery County and Prince George's County is there is the Montgomery County Bar Foundation and Community Legal Services. So right. we kind of say like, that's great. You got that we're happy to support. So we do place cases there because it's either a capacity issue or there are some areas that we assist in that really know, like the tax controversy work, like no one else is really doing that. So we kind of like, well, we coordinate our services in, in those communities. So you're um, a team then. Well, right. Well, like, I mean, well, that's, that's basically right, no right. good. We all want to. We all want to help folks, right? So the best way to do that is to try to make sure that we're doing that as collegially um, as we can. But in terms of funding, I you know I I want to just fight for it. We have all of these programs. We work really you know hard on this work. And at the end of the day, of the you know 100% of individuals that would qualify for free legal services collectively, we only serve about 20% of that need. Okay. Um, so there remains a huge unaddressed need, and that's really limited by how many staff attorneys and how many volunteers that we can generate throughout the state through any of our programs. 
So what about language barriers? You know, there's a fairly large population of people who only speak Spanish or have reduced English. And I wondered what you do about dealing with language barriers. Yeah. Um, so first, I should just say the Administrative Office of the Courts Access to Justice Department has been very proactive and has a lot of the court forms and a lot of their other accessing the judicial system interpreted into a number of languages. So I just want to flag that for a resource. Sure. But as, uh, as our own program, we use um, language line. Um, so really anyone calling in on, with any um, language other than English we have that resource. We do have bilingual paralegals. Where it gets more challenging is matching up someone that speaks a specific language with a volunteer um, who either is, you know, someone that speaks that language or will utilize language line because we provide that for free for our volunteers. So anytime they have a case where it's someone that, you know, is uh, speaking a, a language that they're not as familiar with, they can use language line throughout the, the entire part of the case. So hypothetically, is it possible for members of the public who want to work with MVLS who are not lawyers to work in the capacity of helping the lawyer understand whatever, you know, Hmong or whatever language it is that's a little bit off the beaten path? Absolutely. Both in terms of interpreting as well as and translating. So, you know, it's as you know, it's not uncommon to have legal documents in these legal cases. So also that's really helpful, would be helpful for us to have volunteers that, you know, can create materials or interpret documents if we're doing an adoption or a name change case and we've got a birth certificate from a different country and a different language, having folks that can help us interpret those or translate those or, is very helpful. So two final things I got to cover in the last couple of minutes. One, there was a nice piece on the NPR station up in Baltimore, 88.1 WYPR by Emily Sullivan, talking about tangled titles and, and crediting MVLS. You want to give me 30 seconds on that? This is one of my favorite topics. 30 seconds is not I very understand. much. Well, you've so got to come just, back. Susan. Yeah, you've let me just say this work has really been, it really was an outgrowth of thinking very hard about how do we create housing stabilization across the state, but particularly in Baltimore City, and sure. how do we address the wealth gap between white homeowners and black homeowners. Absolutely. And the tangled title is an, an essential piece to creating, to hope, to ideally proactively tooling up family members to be able to pass the wealth that they have and the homes that they have. And then the tangled title is like, okay, what do we do to help folks that we didn't catch on the front end and try to help them? And we absolutely can always use volunteers in that space. And you don't have to be an estate planning attorney or a state administration attorney to help with these cases. And they are profound in terms of really creating stabilization for these families. I mean, the upshot, and I may be inaccurately stating this, is that a lot of times people pass away and don't make provision for what's going to happen to their home that the family's lived in for the last 40 years. And there's a legion of relatives who might be entitled to have some portion of it or own it. And it's not that easy legally to dig through the muck and figure out who owns what portion of what and vest them with the title going forward. And then sometimes that means the taxes don't get paid and the state, you know, you have foreclosures and there's just all these issues associated with titling that are kind of complex, even for lawyers, but particularly for an ordinary citizen would be almost impossible to penetrate. 100% true. Final thing we need to talk about, and it's gotta be quick, I'm afraid, is that there are 
qualifying incomes. You don't have to be utterly bereft of funds and having no income at all, but there are qualifying levels of income to get MVLS services. Could you touch on that quickly? 50% of Maryland median income, and those are posted on our website. So if you go to our website to get legal help, and we have our income guidelines posted there. And if one wanted to go find your website, where is it? It is www.mvlslaw.org or Google Maryland Volunteer Lawyers. And how about if you want to call? People still oh, use geez. that device? I, we, you know what? I don't have our intake number up, but it is on our website in the same place. If you go to get legal help, we have our income guidelines, we have our phone intake, and we also have online intake. So someone can also apply online for services as well. I'm afraid it's time to wind up. Susan Francis, thank you so much for coming on and talking about the wonderful work of MVLS. I like to think that you will reappear at some point in time. I would love that. Thank you so much. This has been Everyday Law with your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 